Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Crimson Peak is the movie we watched this week. Levi, please give us a synopsis of Cl- Crimson Peak. Edith is an inspiring, an aspiring fiction writer with a ghost mom, and Thomas is a baron with the meanest-looking sister on the planet. Edith's father does not consent to their relationship, but he dies, and Edith jaunts off to England with Thomas and his sister. Their manner is a total code nightmare, and we learn that the Sharps are super mysterious, even at home. Meanwhile, Edith's old high school boyfriend begins investigating her father's death. The ghosts really start to kick into high gear as we learn that Edith is slowly being poisoned by Thomas's sister. The plot thickens as we discover the Sharps have A, killed women before for their fortunes, B, are totally fucking, and C, killed their mom. A knife fight ensues, Thomas pretends to kill Edith's old flame, Thomas's sister kills Thomas, Edith kills Thomas's sister, and everyone gets cut. And that was the movie. That's the synopsis. That's the movie. That was a good synopsis. It's a pretty straightforward story for having ghosts in it. Uh, I wouldn't say straightforward, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's a movie, nonetheless. What did you think of it? I thought it was beautiful and not super interesting. Really? Yeah. I. It was... There were a couple moments in it. There were... When the face comes out of that door uh-huh. that she's not looking at, that was probably the only movie that really gave me a jump. Um, right. I don't know. It's just... Well, this it's, not a, this... it's not a scary movie. That's the thing. It was marketed as a scary movie. There are scary moments in it, but just like all of Guillermo del Toro's films, they're not horror films. They're... They've got their they've got otherworldly supernatural elements in them, but they're not at their at their core scary movies. Although I would say that this is probably his scariest movie. It definitely it has the most red. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whether that's blood or clay or whatever. Ghosts. Um, you know, I just did not This suffered this is I think the issue with this movie for me is that Guillermo del Toro has always struggled in the romantic relationship in directing that. Right. And I think this movie has the same problem. I think that Jessica Chastain and Tom Hiddleston crushed it, but there's just, I, things move so quickly or, but no, you know what? It's a two hour movie. I don't know what it is that (laughs) is missing, but the relationships that Guillermo del Toro lines up just never seem to really spark for me. Hmm. I I have I've had that problem in the past. I did not have that problem with this movie. So you're like, you're up on this movie. You're... I yeah, dude. I think this is Guillermo del Toro's best movie. Really? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Wow. After watching all of his movies, I think that this is his best one. And I think that there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of um, uh, disagreement on that. But it's okay because it's my objective opinion. So yeah, whatever. you're totally allowed, and I can or see, subjective opinion, whatever. I it could is. see where you come from with if if the relationships are ringing a bell with you. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a big fan of sleeping with family and murdering your parents, um, I can see how this movie really hits the right chords. Well, I mean, you didn't believe that Tom Middleton's <laughs> character was in love with uh, with Mia Wachowski or whatever her name's his character. You didn't believe that he was in love with her. <sighs> I it's the closest I've seen that Guillermo del Toro get to convincing me of that, but yeah. I, I wasn't rooting 
for their relationship at any point. I just, no, you're not. Of course, you're not going <laughs> to root for their relationship. It's murderous. It's terrible. It's an awful relationship. Like the whole scene where he brings her to the to the uh, mansion and they're walking through, and the whole thing's like <laughs> decrepit and falling down and melting into the earth. I'm like, holy shit! How is she like sticking around here? But uh, I watched an interview with Guillermo del Toro uh, about this movie, and he was talking about the Walt scene at the beginning because what he was trying to do with this movie is really create like a gothic romance, which is a genre that was really popular for like 200 years, and now nobody does them anymore. Um, But it was that courtship scene. He wanted that Walt scene to be like a courtship, and I thought that Walt scene was very romantic between the two of them. Like there was... It was just kind of this thing where he comes in and sweeps her off her feet. And, like, we've all, you know, been there where it's like uh, maybe this person isn't right for that person, but they come in and they're very dashing and they sweep them off their feet. I felt like that was what happened with the character. And then her father dies and she's essentially left with nothing. And so she has to jump from one thing to another because she had such a deep love for her father. I felt like it all rang pretty pretty well for me, to, uh, con- considering it was only like the first 30 minutes of the movie, and then the rest of the time we're in the mansion. Yeah, and I understand the speed for that, but mm-hmm. the jump from he shows up, speed reads her story, which is sitting yeah, on Yeah, that was a little desk. ridiculous. But there's going to be... That's the I, thing about Del Toro's movies. Like, he's going to have really, like... He's going to use things in the movie to jump the plot forward, and they're not always going to be uh, extremely believable. But you have to see them as kind of symbols and metaphors, I think. Yeah, I understand that. I, you know, this just the jump from that to yeah. now they're at the party, and he's inviting her to waltz with him, and he's doing it like that's some ro- aggressive romance, it, and not yeah. in a bad way, but just like it happens so quickly to the viewer. I feel like it would be. I don't know, better, maybe that that is where you start is just with that, you know, try, don't try and give us this quick buildup, just start with this romance that is new. I think Um, it made, it had to be there because Charlie Hunnam's character needed to have a reason to be there as well. Oh my God. I, I, I just, I just really enjoyed the whole time period and the way that they really brought this time period to life. And it's a time period you don't, see very often i don't know like i haven't seen penny dreadful but it was it was really this movie's kind of like in its own time and place it's, and i really liked that and i liked exploring buffalo new york in 1885 or whenever it was <laughs> um and i felt like most of the characters had strong motivations uh you know jessica Tastain's character probably had the least amount of motivation be- behind her acts but she's also a psychopath that's her motivation she's fucking insane and she's the one-dimensional villain that we've seen before. We saw it in uh, Pan's Labyrinth with El Capitan. Um, it's it's that one-dimensional, you know, the the elfin prince in Hellboy Two. That one-dimensional, one-track mind villain. They're they're effective because they allow our protagonists to be a little bit more fleshed out, and we identify with the protagonist a little more. Yeah, she has no subtlety. <laughs> she's, no. You're here. You're stuck here. You have nowhere to go back <laughs> to. You're never gonna escape. And nobody acknowledges the things she says are just yeah. super haunting. I, and Tom that said, scared. I think she does a damn fine job. She plays a great... Yeah. Especially at the end when she really flips that switch. Jessica Chastain plays crazy Oh, she's really terrified. Well. When she grabs the knife... 
and just slices into her skin and she pulls it out of uh <laughs> pulls out of what's the character's name I, edith's hand um yeah dude she plays crazy really well and then tom hiddleston is a young was a young child and his sister went crazy and murdered their mom and then brought him in as an accomplice so basically throughout his entire life he's been uh at the mercy of this murderous psychopath um and and yet he's got his own passions he's a tinkerer he's a creator uh and he wants to you know forge his own path but he can't get out of the shadow of his, of his sister who at a very young age he witnessed murder their mother he's under her thumb so it's i i thought that i i just the more i think about the movie i i really like the characters i thought that this is the personal film. I mean, this is a sister piece to Pan's Labyrinth and The Devil's Backbone. And it gets into that space that Guillermo del Toro really likes to explore outside of his giant pop films. Yeah, this is the... For me, like, this Devil's Backbone and this movie... They're the same movie. Exist, they exist outside of Pan's Labyrinth in the sense that the yeah. supernatural in this movie has no real effect on the... The world pan's labyrinth. Mm. There's enough of a blurred line, I think, in how uh, the girl moves about the house um, and where the issues arise, the conflicts arise because of her interactions with the the fantastical. But this yeah. movie, you could take out the ghosts, and this is the same story. Um, it is, which I, I think is a a really interesting exercise, and I really appreciate. Yeah, and you and I, I think you and I disagree on that a little bit because I really don't think that the monsters in Pan's Labyrinth were real. I think that they were all a figment of her imagination, but that's just the way I choose to interpret it. But this movie and The Devil's Backbone are the same movie. They're like the exact same movie <laughs> in so many ways. It's like the orphan goes to the secluded place that's a half a day's walk from town uh, and then finds ghosts throughout the building. Um and then there's a murderous one-track mind villain who's only out for money and keys. And uh, and at the end of the movie, you know, somebody gets stabbed in the armpit. And then at the very end, the ghost shows up to save the uh, our protagonist and, and allows uh, our 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 villain to uh, to fall to their doom. Like it's it's follows the same arc as the Devil's Backbone in a lot of ways. Um, and I. To, to me, that was fascinating. Like to me, this is Guillermo del Toro's English language Devil's Backbone set in the 1800s in England. But they're so very similar in a lot of ways. And these are probably Devil's Backbone and Crimson Peak are probably the two least seen of his yeah. movies. I'd imagine. Yeah, Blade Two. I mean, Blade Two was probably seen. Mimic. <laughs> yeah, I Blade think Mimic two, and Chronos probably are ran out too. too. Oh, I guess Chronos. Yeah, is easily the. But I just how. It's it's one of the exciting things about doing this podcast is mm-hmm. that we've got to see these two now in the so such a close proximity that it's it's fun to make that leap. I think you're you're selling me on removing the because I do not get me wrong I the movie was a good movie yeah it, the entertainment value was just felt subpar compared to his other films for me and not yeah played too bad but. Um, <laughs> I you know I just after having seen so many of the relationships and struggling to follow his his style of romance mm. um this one just I don't know it's it's a little it's the other side of the coin of seeing so many of his movies back to back is that it's easier to become 
I think, uh, uh, not immune, but just sort of jaded, man. You're jaded. You're jaded. Oh, it's another Guillermo del Toro weird romance situation. Yeah, but I I really think that he got beyond it. I mean, we talked about how Hellboy and Liz are a weird romance, and uh, and in Pacific Rim that kind of forced romance thing, and like I felt like he I felt like it was a little bit more. He had that kind of Victorian, like Jane Eyre, or not Jane Eyre, but uh, Jane Austen type of sensibility a little bit at the beginning, which I really liked. I don't know. It was um, to me, it was it was just really effective and. The thing that I like about Guillermo del Toro's movies too is that they, uh, they they're a slow burn and they accelerate. And this movie had such a great acceleration. You look at this movie. The thing that I really like about it is that the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie are so different. We go on this epic arc from from where we are at at the beginning of this movie to where we're at at the end. Um, and it's so interesting to me that we, that we're, that he was able to take us on that journey in an effective way in two hours. We started off and Edith is like just a young writer in Buffalo, New York. And by the end, she's killed her foe standing in a bloody snowstorm. (laughs) You know, it's, it's in a, in a, next to a haunted mansion. It was just kind of this really epic arc. And I think that's what I admire most about this film is that it really does. The characters go on such a journey throughout the entire thing. It, More so than any of his other movies, I think. We are talking though the arc. Don't forget that the movie opens with her standing, looking. Oh yeah, it's a bookended. Like she just murdered a person. Yeah, it's the same bookend that he used in Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. Um you know, shows you the end of the movie and the first frame of the movie. Well, and you it, get the same line at the beginning and the end. Uh, yeah, which is exactly what happened in, in The Devil's Backbone. Mm-hmm. It was the in Devil's Backbone is what is a ghost, and in this one, it's ghosts are real. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's such a companion piece to Pan's... I mean, I would call this an unofficial trilogy of Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, and Crimson Peak. I call them like Guillermo del Toro's, I don't know, personal trilogy. Ghost Moms. <laughs> Guillermo del Toro's Ghost Moms. Ghost Moms. <laughs> Ghost Moms was my favorite Goosebumps book. Um. <laughs> yeah, but uh, and it was interesting because he kind of talked about this a little bit in his in this interview that I watched with him. He did like a 20-minute interview on Crimson Peak that I watched. And he talks about how his English language movies uh he says that, you know, they're they're much they're personal but they're pop and juvenile. That's how he describes them. And it makes a lot of sense, man. English language Guillermo del Toro movies, Mimic, Blade 2, Hellboy, Hellboy 2, Pacific Rim up till this film. So, yes, those are all pop movies. They're all kind of appealing to the kid in Guillermo del Toro. And then his more personal films, he he mentioned Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, and this one. And he said that those are his three favorite films that he's made. He left out Kronos, but I think Kronos falls into this camp as well. These are like Guillermo del Toro's personal movies. And I'm I'm kind of excited to see him kind of jump that, um, make that jump into English language personal films. And from the interview, they kind of said, he kind of said that's what he's, planning to do more of in the future and that's all he really wants to do right now are more personal smaller movies so um so i'm excited to see that man and i think that's why i like the movie so much well it's just it's in context i thought it was really interesting coming up too i we're going to talk about it next week with the the epilogue cast um but that's his next his next film falls into the same category of a little bit of 
fantastical and personal, at least according yeah. to the synopsis that I've read. So I'm excited to see because he does – he really grows with every movie. I think that we've seen out of all the directors, I feel Edgar Wright generally had his, – his themes were down and fairly solid all the way through. Yeah. And same with uh, – I think that uh, Quentin Tarantino has kind of meandered, but he stays pretty core – Guillermo del Toro, the growth that you see over the course of all these films is really fantastic. As you see him get get budget, you know his budget comes much more slowly, and his advancements right. are incremental between films. And it's it is great. You're turning me around. The more I think, <laughs> the more you point out for this film because I'm here to convince you. It is so. It is so. How much of this film were you trying to guess that this was a monster house ripoff? zero percent zero you never you never <laughs> thought that they might be feeding the house or something oh i thought that there might be a set like some kind of ritual sacrifice yeah that was yeah and it, yeah i thought they they, they dump them down in the clay in those clay pots down in the basement i thought that there might have been something ritual about that i mean it was mimicking devil's backbone so much like even things like the incestuous relationship even though it wasn't fully incestuous in the devil's backbone but like the older lady who raised the orphan and now he's like her sexual partner thing like it was it was mirroring devil's backbone so much that i was expecting the ghost to jump out of the clay thing and grab jessica chastain and pull her in (laughs) but um but yeah i mean i don't feel like the plot was that hard to figure out um and i guess that was i guess that was the part that kind of fell flat for me was that it seemed like there was supposed to be a mystery here. There's like the, um, there's the homages to Arthur Conan Doyle, Doyle with the, uh, with and, and you know Sherlock Holmes with the Doctor who goes through and he's the investigator and he's investigating throughout and, um, so that was kind of interesting. But there was no real huge mystery. There wasn't any huge revelation. It was kind of like we're just trying to get to the point. This climax. We're just crawling toward this climax. Like the ghost crawling down the hallway. So <laughs> I guess maybe that was maybe the part of the movie that I didn't like as much. But like I said, in context to all of his films, I feel like I really understood what Guillermo del Toro was trying to do with this movie. And and I feel like in a lot of ways it's very personal to him. Like I feel I feel like the main character, Edith, was kind of like the most Guillermo del Toro character in <laughs> that's that he's written in a lot of ways because she's like kind of misunderstood she writes ghost stories but they're not really ghost stories um you know she she has this uh did she say this i think she did she yeah when she's talking about writing her story she said characters talk to you they transform they make choices as to who they become i feel like he really gives us a lot of insight into his writing process of this movie as well well um he's talked about having seen his dead grandmother's ghost or something right I think so. I believe that's come up in an interview or two. So he is Edith. Yeah, he is in a lot. Like, I feel like Edith might be his most personal character. Um, so that's really interesting to me. There's just a lot of things that in context, this movie, um, you know, comes across as very interesting. And, you know, people might criticize that and say, well, you know, you shouldn't have to see Guillermo del Toro's eight other movies to watch and appreciate this movie. I agree with that, but that's not what this podcast is about. This podcast is about putting these movies in context and seeing these directors' arcs as they create their their filmography. So, in that respect, I I just really really liked it. I don't know. 
I mean, I think we might have gone through a different thing, a similar thing with Hateful Eight. I think that you and I both really appreciated Hateful Eight. And a lot of people that I've talked to like didn't like it at all. But in context, it's a fascinating piece of artwork from from Quentin Tarantino after you've seen all of his other films in sequence. Well, that's with there's so much time that goes between the directors that we've been doing, especially they take so many years between movies that it's it's easy to lose track. And especially for. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the films are not often experienced in regards to the other work, but mm-hmm. you look at artists and that's typically in museums. You try and set up a series of their work to show kind of the, the overall exploration, or you show them in context of other artists that are working on the same. So I think you could do Guillermo yeah. del Toro. You could do this, the trilogy, the dead baby trilogy, and Yikes. I'm gonna just keep coming up with names. Sorry, we did get a dead baby. That's true. I don't know why the ghost was hanging out. Well, I guess she because said she that loved she the could baby. Save her. It. She came in. She loved the baby. So when Jessica Chastain killed it, which was terrible, or did did she kill it, or did it die of a disease? Was that it? I'm trying I don't to remember. Think now what the. There was a said, lot that came out in that one yeah, series of exhibitions. I think the baby was born like premature or had a birth defect. Yeah, so it probably died just naturally after they tried to sustain it. Yeah. Um, but Dead Baby Trilogy, where's it going? Oh, if you were to show that in context of some other... Uh, Tarsum Singh would be hmm. a good director, I think, to show with some of his works and how he takes fantasy what, and what did mixes he direct? with reality. He did uh, the Immortals. Um, the one that I'm really thinking of is The Fall. I think that was him. Let's huh. double check. Two. The, nope. That's why am I looking oh, at Oh, he did The Cell. He did The Cell. He has, this, he has a mm. similar take on. He prefers these kind of uh, surreal sets mm-hmm. to a degree. He's got a very graphic eye. His right. His the directing of actors and some of the, the writing that goes along with his work can be hit or miss. Mm. Um, so he doesn't get quite as much, uh, credit. Well, he doesn't I have think. as many films, you know, he's only directed like four films, five yeah. films, but, um, but I think if you showed that, that's the, when you go into just one movie and especially for, I think modern cinema going culture, it's, I'm going to go see star Wars mm-hmm. and just, you're looking for a rip roaring adventure. Right. And some directors just, that's not what they're trying to do. <laughs> well, and that's, it's, it's hard to encapsulate it too. And directors talk all the time about how marketing for films misrepresents their film and their film fails because it was marketed correctly. I was, uh, watching an interview with Max Landis. Um, and he was the writer of, uh, American Ultra, which is a movie that came out the end of last summer with Jesse Eisenberg, where he's a stoner who is like basically the born night. He's a sleeper, you know, like a sleeper agent, but he doesn't know that he's like a, a stone cold assassin trained by the government and something triggers in him and he like goes on this big adventure. Anyway, there was a, like, he was all pissed off about the marketing for that film because it was like marketed as a stoner comedy when actually it's an action comedy. I don't know. But he's blaming the marketing. But it is. It's hard to, you know, put this into a one-liner. Because if you if you watch this, and there are jump scares in this movie. 
And it's really the only Guillermo del Toro movie with jump scares in it. But there are multiple, multiple jump scares. And, um, and but I think that it was marketed as more of that kind of jump scare horror film as opposed to, I don't know how, like a goth, like he would he would describe it as a gothic romance. I don't even know what that really means. <laughs> like, I don't know how to describe this movie from a genre standpoint. It's kind of like a creepy, incestuous... I would call it creepy. Let's well, just call yeah, it, let's put it in the creepy category. Gothic romance implies this is I think where I struggle because you say you're not supposed to be rooting for them, but if it is mm. a gothic romance, wouldn't the heart of a romantic movie be you rooting for the love? Right? I don't know. I don't know what a gothic romance is. <laughs> like, I mean, there's definitely romance in this movie and I I love the way that Tom Hiddleston's character wrestles with his love for Edith, because he hasn't actually loved any of these wives that he's had before. Um, but he loves her, and it's it's a real struggle with him because he's trying to get out, get out from under the thumb of his sister, but he can't um, because she's such a foreboding force, and he has to find a way to appease her, like stabbing the doctor um, in order to in order to you know ultimately get his love and. And he dies at the end for her. He dies trying to save her. Uh, it's ultimately his demise, but he makes the choice that I'm not going to go along with this anymore. And so he's ultimately killed by his sister at a horrific scene. Yeah. She stabs him in the face. <laughs> stabs him in, like, the the upper cheek. Yeah, I like can't... he sliced his optic nerve, maybe, <laughs> and then know. right he to the brain. He seemed to be taking it pretty well. Oh man, yeah. Well, it was. I think it was a brain bleed. It was, but it was just like <laughs> it was such a, such an amazing scene in a lot of ways. And I feel like there's something kind of epically romantic about that. Like he sacrificed himself for her because he loved her so much, and he just couldn't go along. He's, he just couldn't go along with this anymore. I think that maybe that's one of the things about the movie is that Tom Hiddleston's character is so powerful throughout the movie, but then you realize he's actually a hundred percent powerless. You know, he can't he can't get out from the from under the power that his sister has over him. Um, So he's presented as a very powerful character and ends up being being ultimately powerless. But he does in some ways save Edith at the end. Yeah. Even with even though she ends up, you know, making the final blow with that shovel, which Mm -hmm. she's really swinging that thing with some (laughs) force. Yeah. I always well, like you... a good movie shovel kill. <laughs> There's something about it that's just, I don't know what, if it's the improvised nature of the weapon or it's just uh-huh. that noise, that whatever that Foley work is for the shovel hitting. Is there an evil, does he use a shovel in Evil Dead? Oh, he must at some point. Yeah. There's just the gunk. <laughs> the noise, yeah. Speaking of noises, and you mentioned homages. Did you get a hardcore aliens vibe when she gets in when Edith gets in the elevator to mm. go down to the basement and Thomas's sister has got the knife in the elevator thing and she's swinging it back and forth like the alien queen <laughs> swinging her tail and no joke go back and just like listen to the swishing uh-huh. of that and compared to the swishing of the knife tail and aliens I think that was a hardcore reference to aliens interesting just that. Yes, yeah, we had another Guillermo del Toro movie where we talked about it homage to aliens. Didn't Mimic. We? Mimic had a heavy oh, yeah. alien vibe. Yeah, totally. Mimic is totally. <laughs> um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I 
this movie is just it's kind of like I feel like this is the movie that Guillermo del Toro has always wanted to make and I like it a lot well, that's my that's my ultimate review on it is that I like it I ex- the more I think about it the more I talk about it the more I like it actually at some point though the sepia tone is going to get Instagram filter heavy did you for the color <laughs> of this movie it felt just about everything felt yellow and then there's the distinct right. of the blues uh, for one of the dresses and the bedding uh, the red obviously mm-hmm. all over the place but it well he talked about that in the interview he talked about his he called it his color map for the movie and he said that everything in america was gold and everything in the old world was like uh, cyan or blue and it really comes across even in the dresses like edith's dress she likes to, she she wears like gold dresses and she's got golden hair and you know uh, jessica chastain wears these dark blue and dark green dresses and then the ghosts anything ghost or otherworldly is red um so that comes across i thought that yeah the gold this that sepia tone in in america was kind of uh is a little much but you know whatever he's a colorful guy yeah he really and over the course of these movies seeing him kind of tune it in i think there are times where he's a little heavy-handed but mm-hmm. i think it always it also just works with his his storytelling is magnanimous and so i think it pays off to have the color it's not quite uh was it hero is that the film with uh jet Li? Mm-hmm. and every one of the stories is like a single dominant color uh-huh um which absolutely works in that context uh but i think guillermo del toro has sort of something going it it gives it a comic book you know you're yeah, in the graphic in graphic design and making these stories, it's similar to a children's book. You simplify, and one of the things you do is you try and take it down to the primary colors. And he's got, at this point, I think a deft hand at at balancing mm-hmm. that. I think Pacific Rim he really started to dial it in. Pan's Labyrinth had moments of it. Um, yeah, well, they've all had. Subtle. Yeah, they've all had very... I mean, we've talked about the colors thing across Guillermo del Toro's work. I mean, even in Blade 2, like, they didn't do very much red in Blade 2. They did a lot of blue. Like, there's even that scene where, like, when the uh, when the uh, vampire ninjas break into Blade's uh, lair, they, like, turn off the lights and they turn on all blue lights. Yeah, the ultraviolet. Um, yeah. Uh, and like even Mimic, like Mimic had a lot of that those kind of contrasty yellows and blues, and we talked about it in the Devil's Backbone. Color is a huge part, I think, of what he does, and I, I thought it was great to hear him talk about writing out a color map for the story because he must do this with all of his movies. I would be curious to see what that looks like. How does he? It can't yeah. just be written. He's got to have a big, a couple of fat uh-huh. crayons or something that he <laughs> draws stuff out with. I imagine he's kind of a he's. He's kind of a hands-on guy when it comes to that. He's got to be visual. Yeah, and visual he, he he talked about how this movie goes from color to color. It goes from gold to blue to red to white, where the ending is you know that bright white fog. Um, so he thinks about it in that sense as well. And he called he described it as musical. So it's it's like it's almost music to him where we're going from stanza to stanza or like operatic. We're going from one, you know, feeling to another feeling that atmospheric part, 
one of the things that I really liked, he said that he doesn't like the term eye candy. He he likes instead to call it eye protein because <laughs> because it needs to uh, have substance. It needs to like if it's just flashy for being flashy, then it falls flat from a stylistic perspective. But if that that style actually makes the story richer, um, then that's actually what he's shooting for with his with his stylistic approach. And I think color has a huge part to do with that because. It makes it so easy to identify characters and scenes, and um, I mean, even at the funeral of her father, or was it at the funeral? It was. The it was morgue. when the doctor. Uh, no, it wasn't at the morgue. She had already moved to England, and uh, Charlie Hunnam's doctor character was meeting with the lawyer, uh, and they're like walking through it. So it was kind of a flashback or a flash over to the United States, and and it was gold, and you could like tell immediately, oh, we're in the U.S. So I think it's interesting because subconsciously you just start to identify these things, I think. And that's it's just a, a masterful filmmaking technique that he's developed over the 20 years he's been directing films. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to see that growth on his part. Speaking of cutting between scenes, did you notice the two – I'm trying to think of what the effect is called. Is it yeah, the circle wipes? Sky? Yeah, it's what? A circle Circle wipe? wipes? They're, well, they're, that's what I'm calling them, but I know what you're talking about. Uh, there were actually three of them, and then there was one at the end. And the interesting thing about it is that the three at the beginning were circle wipes in, so they would like zero in on a face, uh, or they zeroed in on the ring, I think. And then there was like one more that zeroed in on an object, I think, or it might have been Jessica Chastain's face. And then they like disappear. And then the the last one, the last time that he uses it, it's a circle wipe, but it zooms out. It starts on Edith's face and zooms out, and that's after she has. Um, real had full, a full realization of everything that's going on. It's after she uh, gets thrown off of the balcony by Jessica Chastain. So it was interesting because it's kind of like you were zeroing in on, and I'd like to watch it again and see what we really zero in on the first three times he does it. It's like we're 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 getting clues, and then the that fourth time, it's like uh, Quentin Tarantino does this a lot. He'll do like a he'll do like uh, do the same thing twice and then the third time he'll change it up a little bit this time they did the same thing three times and then the fourth time changed it up a little bit but uh, but I think it was like it was about finding clues or finding characters and then it was and then it was a, a manifestation of her realization that of everything that actually was happening around her it was a nice touch given that between the tone of the movie the in the, in the sense of color uh, you know using all of the contemporary technology, but still giving the film that aged feeling the the, yeah. the circle wipes were a very nice homage. I thought to, to that time period that he's trying to mm-hmm. recreate because the architecture of that house is so on point, even down to the way that it's breaking apart and, and settling. <laughs> even that is done in a way that an, ancient building would do it between the floorboards and how they shifted although i the clay being that high was i that you've got a real problem with your house <laughs> that's not just sinking usually there's because at that point if the if you push the floorboard and the mud comes that means your your mud is over your floor structure at which point that's gone uh-huh. <laughs> so it's a little bit well, high for and there's a basement so yeah that they never really like- how that was sump pump a really yeah. good sump pump 
But I just love the look of this house. And mm-hmm. it was, you see the, the whole time you see the, uh, the leaves falling through the root through the actually it's not yeah. through the roof. I kept expecting the way that they light that space and the way that things are falling through the obvious play would be to have it coming through some sort of skylight, but those are really expensive and actually pretty difficult. And so when you look up and you see that the house has just given out in that section, it's actually much more realistic, I think architecturally, yeah. and it really gives a more ominous sense because it's not this oh light was meant to filter in and light is still filtering in it's this place was supposed to be light and now it is or this place was supposed to be dark and now it is hollow and Mm. the every time it gave a nice it was a it's similar to the uh every frame of painting talking about kurosawa having something always moving in your background background. that Mm -hmm. essentially the heart of the building always had something that was slowly filtering through it, whether it was the snow or before that it was leaves. I don't think we had rain come in at any point, although we did get our heavy rain. Uh, yeah, we did. For the dance, for the waltz. Yeah, in Buffalo. Um, but another thing that I really liked about the house, though, is that it it mimics the house in Devil's Backbone and in Pan's Labyrinth in that it is, like, in the middle of nowhere and it's secluded and once you're there, you can't really escape. Um, and it did a great job of trapping her in a mansion, which is a difficult thing to do. I think it's one of those contrivances that happens in a lot of horror movies. It's like, oh, we're trapped in this house, or we're trapped in this building. Uh, we can't get out. We're trapped in here with the monster. This one did it in a very believable way because, you know, it's a half day's walk to town. She's like, she doesn't, I don't think she wears shoes once she gets to the place. It's like a, ter- you know, terrible snowstorm. Um, and so they do a great job of really kind of locking her into this space, making it feel claustrophobic and, and, you know, locked up with these monsters in, in the house. I thought that was really interesting. I, mean, I think that the big question here that Guillermo del Toro asks is, you know, what if people haunted a house? So you have a haunted house that has a bunch of ghosts in it, but the people who are the really scary, the monsters who are actually haunting the house are the people who reside in it, which is, um, which is a cool concept. See? And I like how Jessica Chastain's playing kind of against character here. Uh, and she's pretty fucking scary. She <laughs> like, really, <laughs> I uh, there's a bit I remember on Corolla from a long time ago where he was talking about these two kids in California that murdered their parents, and he made the point that when you have two kids, if one of your kid looks at the other kid and says, "Let's let's kill dad," generally you'd want the other kid to be like, "No, that's you're crazy, you're out of your mind." But if both kids agree, if one looks at the other and says, "Hey, let's kill mom," and the other goes, "All right." That's on you as a parent. That one came down. That's your fault because it happened twice that your kids are crazy enough to to go through that. And that's all I could think of by the time that we figured out. Even though, in theory, Tom Hiddleston was too young to really be an accomplice, he didn't exactly stop her. Yeah. And their well, age difference and having a sibling... Well, he was 11, she was 14. Yeah, that I have a sister who's about the same age difference. And it's yeah. really, like, you're not intimidated by the older sibling when the age difference is that close. 
Yeah, but I think that they were there. I think there's a really strong message there that she was po- post pubescent and he was prepubescent. Oh, I get it. <laughs> okay, maybe. You make a like, good argument, sir. You know. <laughs> So I, I I mean my sister's four years older than I am, and I know when I was ten she seemed like she was like forty. <laughs> you know, there's there's a big difference. There's a big gulf that you that separates those two ages. So I don't put a lot of blame on him. Um, I mean I I I kind of feel sorry for his character because he is he had to grow up in the shadow of this murderer. And he was basically at her will the entire time, and you know he do, he's not blameless. He goes he does awful things, and he, um, but he's he's a sympathetic character in that he is under the control of a of a psychopath. It's and I may not be using psychopath correctly. I don't ever know if I'm if it's psychopath or sociopath, or sociopath or whatever. Either way, but I agree that he was in the end a sympathetic character. At the beginning, you are trying to muddle through what exactly his relationship is, and you can tell his emotions are a little bit at odds. Um, but by the end, because of his choices, this—I mean—that's where Guillermo del Toro, you know, his his mm-hmm. strongest theme comes through in the end because. He dies, and you don't feel super bad about it, but you are sympathetic to his character in the end because he is trying to change, and that's, in theory, what should matter. What choice did they make? Yeah, in the end. And he makes that choice. Uh, It's, yeah. It's interesting. And then when he shows up at the end, he is the ghost from devil's backbone like they look (laughs) he doesn't look like any of the other ghosts he looks like the ghost directly from devil's backbone which i thought was interesting although the other ones are guillermo del toro really likes his ghosts wispy yeah they all because they all had like stuff falling up yeah but which made more sense with the devil's Devil's backbone backbone kid because he drowned and so you're seeing the air bubbles kind of go up well, and the, the blood, buoyancy. you know, the blood when he was under the water kind yeah. of floated up and out. So that blood floating up and out, wispy, um, the wispy ghost of Devil's Backbone is explained that way. And in this one, not so much. But I, I feel like the ghosts were the scariest ghosts that he's made in this movie. Like, specifically in that opening scene when she's oh, recounting yeah. her mother <laughs> and the, the the clawed hand coming over the back of her. Um I think that's one of those relatable experiences as a kid where you see a shadow and the only reaction you have is to hide under your covers. And the logic behind that is so strange. Like, what is it about your covers that make you feel (laughs) safe? But I think that's something that generally people can relate to. But imagining – and then just – so take that sensation that you know and what if a hand had grabbed you in the end – Nope, done. That's out. No way. <laughs> yeah, I scarred know. for life. Yeah, absolutely. but she seemed to take it well enough. She seemed to. Well, as nope. a per, I, I I like that part of her character in that she didn't have a ton of fear. In that, I mean, she had. It, it's not the type of quiet bravery that we've talked about. That was the Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, but it's it's this bravery of like. She knows that ghosts exist. They come and talk to her, so she's not afraid to pick up a, ca- a candelabra and walk through a haunted mansion and investigate. Like, she's got this gumption, you know, where she's curious and she's trying to figure stuff out. And even though a ghost could pop out at any moment and grab her, she's not terribly afraid. Like, I mean, the first ghost that I see, I'm out of there, man. I'm peacing <laughs> out. 
Um, well, and after you've been gripped by one, then all bets are yeah. You in your life, you assume that every ghost can do. If you see a ghost and it doesn't really screw with you, I'd assume that your develop your childhood development, you'd be all right. Ghosts are they like the six cent kid? They never really touched him. So, and I could be remembering that wrong, yeah. but I'm um, for sake of argument. He was caught, he understood in the end because they never screwed with him. They were just mm-hmm. up in his grill. <laughs> this one, she was touched out. Yeah. That's she was grabbed, <laughs> no man. That means ghosts have a physical presence in the world that can at least potentially be your throat next or something. <laughs> and that was your mom. Yeah, I know. Her mom got real creepy real quick. Yeah, mom. Uh, decayed really quickly. Yeah, um, I, I did like too. So there's this guy. Uh, you know, we're talking. If we want to talk about recurring characters, uh, there's this guy, Burn Gorman. Burn Gorman. Yeah, and he played the um, the scientist that wasn't Charlie Day in Pacific Rim. <laughs> That's <I> just, <laughs> yeah, and. He did such a good job in this movie, I thought. And he played, like, a completely different character than he played in Pacific Rim. Like, in Pacific Rim, he's, like, a physics, a great physics mind. Um, You know, he's practically Stephen Hawking upright. And in this movie, he's, like, this kind of formidable P.I. from... Uh, from New York, I thought that the, he he made a really good turn, and I would I would like to see him in future Guillermo del Toro movies. I hope he becomes a recurring character. On the other hand, can we get Charlie Hunnam off of screens? Please? <laughs> uh, what was it, Gorman Burn Burn Gorman? Burn he Gorman. actually shows up in Game of Thrones Ooh. as a really really nasty human being, uh, and it's shocking when you go from Pacific Rim to that because uh-huh. it's Game of Thrones so <laughs> anything that Guillermo del Toro can think up George R. R. Martin is 10 more steps ahead in the nasty department <laughs> um, so he is not he is truly unsettling in that I really dug mm. his chops I agree Charlie Hunnam oh, that guy and I there must be something because I've heard great things about Sons of Anarchy, and I didn't get yeah. So maybe I'm missing something. He must. He's got something, but maybe it's just him and Guillermo del Toro don't click right. I don't know. I is he's just got this thing, and it's the thing that bothers me about actors in general. The thing that bothers me most about film actors is that they have this awareness of the camera, and to be a film actor, you have to have an inherent awareness of the camera because you need to be able to play to the camera. Um. But there's just a little too much, like, playing to the camera. Like, there's one thing about uh, understanding the camera's presence and how it's going to capture performance, but still being in the scene. Charlie Hunnam is, like, just acting straight to the camera the whole time, in my opinion. And, god damn it, the guy... I, why, why, why did... I guess he had to be American in this movie, but can we just... <laughs> like, he does the worst American accent. Like, usually... <laughs> Actors kind of nail, especially like actors from British countries or Commonwealth countries. British countries, you know what I'm saying? Commonwealth <laughs> countries. They can they can figure out the the American accent, but god damn it, this guy's accent is something to be talked about. I suppose because I've been doing it for the last couple minutes. I just assumed every time he showed up on the scene, as Liz and I were watching, I kept calling him Raleigh. <laughs> Raleigh. <laughs> That's all I could imagine is just how that the other Australian guy in that in Pacific Rim yeah. 
couldn't pronounce this because he's Charlie Hunnam's Australian, isn't he? I believe so. Huh. Anyways, yeah, but that's the thing. Uh, apart from him, and I think maybe it's just the contrast because Tom Hiddleston's amazing, Jessica Chastain's amazing, and I'm going to try to say her last name, Mia Wasikowska. She's amazing too. I thought that the acting performances in this were really strong, and I really liked Mia's character. I thought she was a great protagonist. Like, there, I felt I felt like she was relatable um, at the beginning. Like, they did a good job of like making her a strong person. Now she kind of stands up to the doctor's mom. She's got like this weird relationship where she, um, you know, she's very earnest and like, she wants to get out there. She wants to be taken seriously. She's trying to overcome sexism. There's like a lot of things that make you root for her at the beginning. And then she just gets caught in this terrible mansion. Um, she gets kind of swept away into this awful situation and you want her to come out ahead. Uh, and I, I thought that she did an amazing job, too. It made me actually want to see... I believe she's the person who plays Alice in the Alice in Wonderland movies. The uh, the Tim Burton ones. I wouldn't like race to watch those. Did you yeah. actively make the Jane Eyre joke knowing that she was in Jane... Or reference Jane Eyre? Joke, that she's in Jane Eyre? I did not. Jane Eyre? I did not. But I, now I am seeing it on her IMDb. So that makes sense. I actually really wanted to see that Jane Eyre movie. I, maybe I'll go to that one because it's that Jane Eyre movie is directed by Kerry Fukunaga, Fukunawa, or Fukunaga, excuse mm-hmm. me, and he's the guy who directed the first season of True Detective. Oh, yeah, dog, you just sold me on that. Yeah, so maybe I'll go see that before I go see uh, the Alice in Wonderland movie. Um, but yeah, I thought just the acting across the board was really great. I like the guy who played her dad. Um, you know, we've made the uh, comparison on this podcast before we made the made the assumption that maybe Guillermo del Toro isn't the greatest director of actors, but the actors in this one I felt like pretty much killed it, except for Charlie. So. Yeah, and I think that comes with I think that the strict with Tom Hiddleston, Jessica Chastain, especially like the A level actors. Mm-hmm. I think regardless of their uh, director, I think they will they will crush. Um, and I think that Mia Wasikowska is probably in a similar situation. Yeah. Um, and so I think that Guillermo del Toro, as he attracts these actors, I think it actually works out well for him because it, it makes up for what we kind of see as one of his shortcomings. Yeah. And, and maybe he just did, hasn't had the cred to get the top a list actors. And I hope what I'm hoping is that um, this movie has given him enough credibility where he can start getting more and more good actors. Because if you want an interesting role, Guillermo del Toro can write you a very interesting role as an actor. <laughs> so I and I want to see more and more good actors kind of doing his thing uh, and, and being a part of, of what he does. Um, and we still had, uh, oh, what was his name? The... <laughs> All I can think of is when you were harassing him about being a poor man's Andy Serkis. Uh, oh yeah doug jones doug jones yeah all the ghosts oh really he's at it says it credits him with edith's mother and lady sharp Ooh. and there were some other gr- ghosts but i'm guessing those were either entirely cg or that anytime there was a reality <laughs> to them that it was him well i think he also played um tom hiddleston's ghost really wait i got gotcha. you 
It's <laughs> like, wait, you. why would they? I guess to make him, if they could like make his makeup, make him look like Tom Hiddleston, but he'd look just off of Tom Hiddleston. That actually would have been kind of a an interesting. No, that move. would have been dumb. That would have been really dumb. <laughs> if you have Tom Hiddleston, use Tom, Tom Hiddleston. <laughs> yeah, but maybe Tom Hiddleston doesn't do. He's like, mm, no, I don't do. Don't do those. Effects. Don't do ghosts. I don't, I don't do, do ghosts. ghosts. I only do Norse gods. <laughs> um, one of the things that I also really liked about this that, that he talked about in the interview is the kind of the gender swapping. Um, in that, you know, the last scene is between two women, you know, going at it, and and having a, a female protagonist and having a female antagonist in the movie is something that doesn't really happen very often, and so I think there's something about that too that I really enjoyed. Um, in in and the guys are kind of like, uh. You know, the guys in this movie are the ones who have to be protected and the ones who have to be saved. And the women are the ones who are, you know, going out there and and really driving the story forward. And they're the ones that we're rooting for and against. So I thought that was really interesting too, kind of that gender swapping aspect of this film. I meant to bring that up with Pacific Rim, that Pacific Rim failed the Bechdel test. Mm -hmm. Hardcore. The Bechdel test being it has to have more than one female character the female characters have to speak to each other and have to speak to each other about something other than the male protagonists right um and really mako is the only female character yeah, there's no in other Pacific women Rim. in that movie but other this than one the, the second russian yeah Jaeger she, driver but she, she gets has killed, two lines yeah and she gets killed crushed, immediately drowned yeah um but yeah this one i agree and that was one of the first comments i saw and i was watching the uh, nerdist uh, comic-con footage from mm-hmm. the before this movie came out and he he brought that up he said you know he has two daughters and it's something that he is very aware of having two daughters that those things they matter you yeah. know those are whether or not you want to admit the more that the media how the media portrays gender has a distinct effect on mm-hmm. the people watching it it's what you take in, it is hard to overcome that in the when you process it out. Yeah, absolutely. And I and um, and one of the things that I really like about this is that uh, it also explores some of the things that a woman would have in that era. Like, there's kind of this, uh, she, you know, she's dealing with sexism because she can't she can't be taken seriously as a writer. And uh, and you know, there's kind of this ownership thing that goes on at that kind of ball. Um, it, so it, it explores these things really interestingly, but it also just makes the movie more fucking interesting. Like I, I, I didn't, I think sub, on a subconscious level, I found this so much more interesting because these are stories that don't get told. <laughs> and if there were two guys in the lead in this, it would just be another like dude, you know, weird psycho, you know, psycho thriller event thing. But this one, it has its own flavor because of the female protagonist. Very similar, like, I just, um, my wife, have you seen the movie Brooklyn? No. It was kind of an Oscar darling this year, um, and in terms of nominations, I don't think it really won anything, but, uh, but it was nominated for a number of things, and it's, it's a, you know, it's a story about this young woman who is, uh, emigrating to the United States from New York, and, and I was like, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll watch it kind of in the background, you can go ahead and watch it. So she starts watching it, and then, like, five minutes in, I'm just, like, engrossed in this movie, like it was so interesting to me, and I think that it's, I think that it's really important for us to, 
kind of branch out a little bit and especially in a thriller ghost story horror movie to have a female protagonist and antagonist it makes the story more interesting because it's something we haven't seen before well and usually in a horror setting a female character is usually the victim yeah exactly like in this one like i thought it was really cool i didn't get it when i was watching it but guillermo del toro calling it out that the men are the ones who have to be saved in this movie uh, which i thought was a great great gender flip i thought that was really interesting and Most that adds to that complexity about uh, Charlie Hunnam. I believe that man needs to be rescued. <laughs> he needs to be rescued for sure. <laughs> um, so I thought that was really cool. Uh, let's. I want to talk to. I uh, want to touch on the forums here because uh, Davy Mack did a great big analysis of this movie, and I think he agreed with us on a lot of things. He, I think he disagreed with us on a few things. Um, he said he was ultimately a little bit uh, disappointed by the movie, um, but he loved the mansion. Um, and he was a little thrown off just like you were with kind of the relationship building between the two. Uh, <laughs> but the thing that I really like that he called out here is that how the pen that her father gave her was used as a weapon later in the film. Yeah. And I missed he, that. It's a, it was beautiful. Cause it was one of the first, it's our introduction to her father. She, he gives her this pen and he says, you have to have the right tool for the job. And it's what she uses to get out of that situation <laughs> is that pen. I thought that was really, really interesting. He also points out that the arm stip, armpit stab made oh, yeah. a comeback, yeah. which I believe you wanted to be a thing when oh, we yeah. watched Devil's Backbone. Oh, I was so excited about the armpit stab. <laughs> I was so excited about it. Because, like, that needs to be in more movies. Well, and it... I'm surprised. Shouldn't Charlie Hunnam have died from yeah. that? Isn't oh, that like that's artery sure. location number one, and there's yeah. not like a good pressure point to yeah. really stop that flow? Well, I guess you could use your armpit. I mean, you, you got a pretty good joint down? there to squeeze. Maybe, now, but I guess yeah, I'm I mean, holding pulls, my arm. <laughs> to, <laughs> I know he pulls the knife out, and the artery just starts spurting blood. I'm like, dude, he's dead. He's a doctor. He should. You don't pull it out not until you. And then the thing is, like. And then he gets stabbed again. And I know that they <laughs> they say, well, you know, I, I, he had him stab him in a place that he wouldn't die. But, I mean, come on. Anywhere in the belly. You saw the be- We saw the beginning of Reservoir Dogs. Uh, anywhere <laughs> in the belly is going to be off. Like, when he when he gets in the elevator with Tom Hiddleston's character, I was like, what the fuck? He's still alive? <laughs> I thought yeah, they and killed him. His And <laughs> Tom Hiddleston's sister let him carry him away while he was still... I know conscious yeah she it was didn't... like and take him down to the basement i don't know that was a little bit of a weird thing but there are a lot of little weird things in this movie yeah, there are a lot of weird things in every movie yeah and that's the thing is is i thought that he i thought he said you're a doctor show me where i thought he meant show me where i can stab you and you'll die immediately yeah that's was my original interpretation yeah i was like where can i stab you where there's not going to be any suffering not where can i stab you where there's going to be the max amount of suffering did he show him his cheekbone <laughs> right here right <laughs> under my eyeball dude stabbing the face was awful um so yeah and then i think that's the thing i really like about this movie just to cap it off is that We've watched all of Guillermo del Toro's movies, and he's made the blockbusters. He's made the Hellboys and the Hellboy 2 and the Pacific Rim. He's made his personal films. He's made Pan's Labyrinth, which was an Oscar darling of itself. Um, you know, he's 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 paid his dues over the last 20 years, and this movie to me just really it solidified that he has earned the right to tell his stories. And he has such a unique voice 
that and one of the only original voices that's con that's consistently pumping out original content um like him and the cohen brothers are kind of like the two groups of people that are just making new stuff which which is uh, entirely and stylistically their own so i admire him a lot for this movie and while this movie is not perfect and while i would say that none no guillermo del toro movie is perfect they all have their quirks that i was just kind of proud of him for this movie i was like this is it dude this is this is the movie that he has been trying to make we've watched all of his films and this is the movie that he has wanted to make over this entire course and you saw a, a perfect trajectory from his first film to this film it make this film makes a lot of sense in context to his career and i think that's why i liked it so much is that i was i was like god damn it guillermo you made it you fucking made it <laughs> um well now we get to see if he see if he can do it again i'm yeah. really really excited to see i want to call it lady in the water but i don't remember what the <laughs> yeah it's a cold war romance right yeah We'll get deep into it next week. I really, yeah, I'm excited we'll talk to talk about week. it just because the more I read about it, the more I'm hopeful that hopefully this one goes through. Yeah, I, I know. know he's got a lot coming in and out. Um, yep. So, and it's interesting too. This movie, so the production budget was 55 million. It made 74 million worldwide. So not a not a roaring success by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, I think it's cool that he earned his way to to this movie. After making a $200 million movie, somebody else handed him a movie and said, all right, make whatever you want, Guillermo. And, well, and he and went he from do it. giant robots punching giant monsters to yeah. gothic romance? Yeah. That's not a jump I think a lot of directors can pull off. Even Quentin Tarantino, his signature violence is in every movie. I think he would have a hard time try- turning it off for one mm. film. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. It's it's interesting, man. It's he's got an interesting career. Uh I do want to touch on one more thing that Davey Mack uh posted in the forum that, that kind of flew right over my head and I love this take. Um he said there was Thomas uh oh sorry. Uh he said I like the realization that at the end everything we saw on screen ended up being turned into Edith's novel. And I didn't get that. I didn't realize that she was writing the story. So, oh yeah, well, and she says it's not, it's not a ghost story. It's a story yeah. with ghosts in it. It's a yeah. very uh, Edgar Wright move to put that right up front. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the wink, like, hey, that house is not a haunted house. It's yeah. a house with haunted people in it. Yeah, and I still expected that house to come alive. And some, oh, <laughs> I cannot I'm, believe that I did not. <laughs> let that go for most of the movie (laughs) i'm glad it didn't come alive no i agree it's a much and that last scene was so good just out in the snow it had this kind of silent hill feel Mm -hmm. with all the beautiful clay coming up this ah, this is a beautiful movie yeah the only other thing i have is it was there was also the bug collection in this movie which i like that's a theme that he used and also the idea that the the house only has moths in it um, and that the moths eat butterflies. That was basically a great metaphor that Jessica Chastain character is the moth and these women that they bring in are the butterflies. And she eats the butterflies. I thought that was interesting. You know, I don't think I put together that symbol. Because I think that she... Well, I think that's why she grabbed the cocoon. I think that... Well, I mean... She's going to eat it? Um. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense that she would be able <laughs> to take it back and it would survive. But I was like, is she taking it back to the mansion to feed to the moths? 
she is Mothra. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, that's. I think that's all. That's that's all we have this week. But we will be back next week with the epilogue, uh, and we'll rank all of Guillermo del Toro's movies. Uh, guess which one will be last? Oh, that. Rem- <laughs> <laughs> um, but until then, please, listener, keep in touch with us. Go to the forums, forums.baldmove.com. Let us know what your rankings are. Let us know what you think of Guillermo del Toro as a director after watching these films. And uh, you can also send us an email, directpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to read it on the show. And until next time, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.